Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my parcel of one friend, Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the use of item parcels in latent variable modeling. We define what they are, what might motivate you to use them, and what unexpected complications can arise if you're not paying adequate attention. Along the way, we also discuss wheel extenders, walking toward the light, logoria, party bands, corpse-sniffing dogs, boxes of human heads, academic dunking, getting uppity, crane kicks, mic drops, and Sonia sweeping the leg. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Sometimes at the end of my modeling class in the spring, I will have some sort of celebration with the students because they will have been with me doing two semesters of modeling-related things. I mean, what kind of modeling? Is this like swimsuit stuff (laughs) and nude stuff? Yeah, the course title was supposed to be causal modeling. There was a typo. It was listed as casual (laughs) modeling. Uh, Yeah, weird stuff happened. I try to build images as you tell stories, and I just need to know... So the last night of class, we have a poster session and everybody has their research project, lovely posters around the room and the students float around and they talk to each other. And it's just a wonderful culminating event. I love it. This one year, I have a friend who is a cookie artist. I don't mean just kind of makes cookies. I mean ridiculous. She is better at this than I've ever been at anything in my life. Amazing. Go on Instagram and look up Juliet Sugar and Steel Cookies. I had asked Julie at Sugar and Steel Cookies to make me some structural equation modeling related cookies. And she made these beautiful cookies in the shape of a latent growth model that said on it, I'm a model citizen. (laughs) I ordered these like six weeks before the end of my class. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I contact and say I haven't received the cookies yet. No, they were packed. They were put in the mail. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. The cookies finally arrive. I get the box and it is heavy. We're having our class thing. I get all my stuff ready. I go to class. I take the box. Students have their poster set up. I cut open the box and a car part is in the box. (laughs) It's called a wheel extender and it probably weighs about 40 pounds. Can you imagine just for a moment what a 40-pound chunk of metal does to three dozen cookies? (laughs) One and a half cookies survived. The rest was just a giant container full of pulverized cookies. Wait a minute. I just realized in the end I had a box of sugar and steel. I just got that. (laughs) Anyway, I checked with sugar and steel cookies. We did not send you a car part, we assure you. So somewhere along the way in the mail system... The package got opened. A car part from God knows where was put in there. The package was sealed back up, and then it was delivered the rest of the way. Discuss. Interesting. (laughs) We try to open each episode so that we can transition into whatever the topic is. And I told you at 11 o'clock at night when we were going to record at 8 a.m. the next morning that I had nothing. Mm -hmm. And you said, no worries, dude. I got it covered. Is this it? (laughs) Yes, this is it. What happens when you put things together, maybe that shouldn't be put together, into a parcel, like a mailing parcel? That was a long walk to freedom. (laughs) (laughs) That was the only parcel story I had. Let's go with your opening story, Patrick. Go ahead. Uh, 
Just sec, I'm going through a tunnel. <laughs> Go toward the light. Go toward the light. You keep telling me to walk <laughs> toward the light. Please. Please. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like a good friend would say, walk away from the light. And every time this comes up, you encourage me to walk into the light. I really do. Then this show would be nothing but you and Jiffy. <laughs> Hi, Jiffy. Okay, no, stop. I can hear you over the speaker system. There was that one time, Patrick, where you said... Stop. You cut the little guy off? You are harsh. Okay, how about this? Mm -hmm. Let's just hemorrhage the bleeding and move forward and talk about parcels. What does hemorrhage the bleeding mean? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's not right, is it? You make me do these at 8 a.m. By the way, fun fact... Hemorrhage was the word I went out on in the seventh grade spelling bee when I got to, like, the states. Greg, your word is hemorrhage. Could you use it in a sentence? You need to hemorrhage the bleeding. Part of speech? Nounish. <laughs> hemorrhage. H-E-M-O-R-R-H-A-G-E. Hemorrhage. Yeah, I don't know. I got it right this time. You know what's really interesting? And I mean this genuinely. I didn't think the opening could have gotten worse. <laughs> All right. Thank you for your logaria. <laughs> L-O-G-O-R-R-H-E-A. Logaria. Parcels. Talk to me about parcels. Okay. Today's topic is parceling or the formation of parcels. When you have a collection of variables, usually for modeling related purposes, and you have to decide whether or not it makes sense to coalesce them down into a smaller set. Today, I think we're going to talk about the pros and cons, the consequences of using parcels versus not using parcels. You want to set us up a little bit on some of the practical aspects? I really like the topic of parceling. And the reason is there's a joint balance between statistical issues with the model and practical issues of addressing a challenge in a given analysis. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to some principles to think about what we're even talking about. Okay. These things arise in exploratory factor analysis, confirmatory factor analysis, SEM. Let's just say, just as a starting point, so we can throw a line back historically, mm-hmm. that we've got an exploratory factor analysis. Okay. And we have multiple items that define an underlying factor. And just making things up, let's say we have three factors, three latent variables. And each one equally making things up is we have reason to believe that there are 30 items per factor. (laughs) Okay. But this is not insane. The big five personality, MMPI, Mm -hmm. or let's say that you have a hundred item test. Wow. Yeah. That you're giving kids. These are not crazy town kinds of numbers. Mm -hmm. You got to help me with the math on this one. You've got 90 items that you assessed, Mm -hmm. 90 times 89 divided by two. (laughs) Just a sec, just a sec is... Wait um, a minute. No, no, I can do it in my head. (laughs) There are 4,005 bivariate correlations Hmm. in a 90 by 90 matrix. Mm -hmm. I just figured that out of my head. I didn't pick up my cell phone. That's really good. You, within reason, can't fit that model to anything but the largest sample size that you might have. Thousands, right? If you have 4,000 bivariate correlations. So you have the items, you have the theory, you have the question, 
but it's not practical to fit that model to that many items. Mm -hmm. So then the pragmatic part becomes, well, what do you do? A parcel, let's start by a simple definition, Mm -hmm. is a combination of individual items, much like your motor part and cookie, which now (laughs) I see... Maybe it took longer to get there than needed, but (laughs) what we can do is take a mean or a sum. Those are the same thing. So for the conversation, let's just say it's a mean. Mm -hmm. You take a mean of two or more items to make a new item. And that new item is a parcel of multiple items. Mm -hmm. It's really logical. So if I have 30 items that I believe defines an underlying latent factor... Maybe I say, well, I'm going to take triplets of items and item one, two, and three, I'm going to take the mean of those three. Mm -hmm. Now, instead of 30 items on your first factor, you have 10 parcels, each consisting of the mean of three items, and then you go about your work as you normally would. There's a very practical solution to a very real problem, while also, ooh, that seems a little dangerous. I like that you started it off with practicality because it does feel practical. The idea of modeling 4,000 correlations is incredibly unwieldy. And honestly, it's just a little bit psychologically overwhelming. So being able to reduce this down to something smaller feels like a good thing to do. It also has the potential to get around some problems. For example, the distribution of scores that we might have on any particular item might be such that if the item is continuous, perhaps the responses are skewed. It might be the case that the responses on given items are ordinal. Maybe they're binary. When you form these parcels, to some extent, under the right conditions in the universe, you might be able to get distributions associated with each of those parcels that are more favorable. And so practically, you're dealing with fewer variables, and you like the distributions better. So there are a lot of things that feel like it's very helpful for you to do this. And these are the motivations that were often given, even going back to the earliest days of factor analysis. So there's a very famous data set by Holzinger and Swineford that are often used in demonstrating exploratory factor analysis. It goes back in the 1930s, and turns out Holzinger was actually at Carolina when they were doing this work. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really cool is in the Thurstone lab, we have the original data files of Holzinger and Swineford in a file drawer. It's really cool to see. Actually in a file cabinet? Oh, yeah, in a file cabinet. (laughs) They would give items to assess various aspects of cognitive functioning. There were items related to visual perception. There were items related to addition and speededness. Mm -hmm. There were items related to verbal fluency. And then they would take subscales and use those subscale scores as indicators on the EFA. Raymond Cattell, who was a titan in this field, advocated for parcels back in the day. You can even think about ties back to Kronbach in the 1950s of split half reliability, Mm -hmm. where you randomly take items, form a composite, and look at the correlations between the two. Those are parcels. Mm -hmm. And indeed, how I like thinking about it is put them on a continuum, right? So say you have these 30 items. Mm -hmm. You can have 30 individual items on one end. You can have a mean of all 30 and just have a manifest scale score. Yeah. Parcels fall in between the two. That's why I really like this pragmatic element is to say, okay, you can't afford to do a factor model with 30 individual indicators. 
but we don't really want a single scale score that's the mean of all 30. Is there somewhere in between that is close enough for working at a state university? (laughs) Because that's what you and I do. Yeah. (laughs) I love the image of the slider that goes all the way from a completely unparceled model to a model that's completely parceled. There are a lot of points in between those two endpoints, right? You gave that example of having 30 items that you parceled down to 10 parcels of three items each, but that's not the only position on the slider even for that, right? You could... Oh, crap. Now I have to do math. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you, could, you could have uh, six parcels of five items each. You could have five parcels of six items each. You could have uh, two parcels of 15 items each. Why did you pick 30? I should have picked an odd number. <laughs> But not a prime number. What if there were 31 (laughs) items? But here's where things get really complicated, is imagine that you have six parcels of five items each. Mm -hmm. We can do that pretty well. If each parcel has five items, you've got continuity, you maybe have better normality. There are other advantages too. Back in the day, some even advocated that this could be a way of grossly handling missing data, right? Because what if some people had five items, but some people had four of those items? Well, you could divide by five for those who had five and divide by four for those who had four. Not a great way of doing it, but you could do it. All right, so what could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, well, let's stop at one point on the slider where we have six parcels of five items. How do you allocate those items to parcels? Mm -hmm. So you could have one through five on the first parcel, but you could have one, two, three, four, and six, or one, two, three, four, and seven. There are thousands and thousands and... How many are there, Patrick? I will let you do the math. (laughs) But we can leave with an N choose P where there are millions of possible ways those can come about. Sure. So how do you select the number of parcels? How do you select what items go into which parcels? And how do you know which is the, I'm going to use air quotes on radio, correct combination of items in parcels, but is there a correct one or are they just different possibilities? Mm -hmm. And that's when the band shows up and the party starts getting fun. I think there are a lot of different ways that people parcel. I rarely see people providing details about how they have done it. And I think part of that rests on the assumption that maybe it it don't make no never mind. But like you said, people could just go through the list of 30 and just say, all right, we took the first five and then the next five and then the next five. Or they might do every fifth one or would it be every sixth one? Damn it. Why did you? (laughs) Anyway, or they might choose them randomly. So there are different ways, some that are more purposive and some that are more random some that have to do with maybe some lower order kind of structure. So you might have a construct that those 30 items are tapping, but maybe tapping in a higher order way. It might be the case that the first five items get at one subdimension of depression and the next five items get at another subdimension of depression, et cetera, all the way through. So someone might do their parceling based on content of those items. So there are a variety of ways to slide that slider. Exactly. And there are a lot of wonderful papers written on this out in the world. And no, we haven't gotten a new webpage yet, but 
it is moving up my yellow sticky. Mm. We will have a web page. We will have show notes. We will have these citations. So we promise we'll get these. There are some very obvious implications of parceling. I don't mean pay the reaper things, but I mean some seeds that we need to plant just so we understand how the reaper gets paid later. So let me just start with a few. And these are going to be obvious for the most part, but I think we'll refer back to them. Immediate implications of parceling. First of all, we have fewer indicators per factor. So rather than having 30, we might have five or six or two or however many we have chosen. There are fewer indicators per factor. What that also means is that there are fewer variables in our model as a whole. So when we think about making model comparisons even, it's a bit of a strange comparison because one model would have 30 items per factor and another might have five or six items per factor or three or however many. So We are taking a big volume of variables and making it a smaller volume of variables. That means that we are dealing with covariances and variances, or if you wish, correlations that are far smaller in number, right? You parcel, you're going from those 4,000 correlations down to some much smaller number. In fact, if we parceled it down to having, let's say, five parcels per factor, 15 variables total, how many correlations would that be, Patrick? 15 variables total. 15 times 14 over 2 is 105. So you went from 4,005 to 105? Yes. Slightly fewer correlations to be dealing with here in this model. Again, that is just an immediate and obvious implication of parceling. It means that as a model goes, you will have fewer degrees of freedom because you no longer have a measurement model that is bringing thousands of correlations or covariances and only burning up a few parameters in the measurement structure, meaning loadings and error variances. So your model is going to have far fewer degrees of freedom, obvious implication. The magnitudes of your loadings are going to change. When we have 30 items loading on a factor with whatever the loadings may be, when we combine those, whether it's randomly or purposively or theoretically or whatever way that we do it, the loadings will change. How they will change maybe depends on some things, but the loadings are going to change. So those are obvious things up front. Now the question is, what consequences might those things have for a variety of aspects of our model? And the consequences permeate throughout every aspect of what we're trying to do. So Mm -hmm. we know that degrees of freedom are numerical measures of courage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you have fewer degrees of freedom, you are intentionally simplifying the model. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today are going to have effects on things, but often they're in complex and unpredictable ways. Mm -hmm. So it's going to change your power. But it's really hard to predict how and in what way because there's omnibus power to identify a misspecification within the body of the model. But there's also power to detect a specific effect. So say you're focused on the first latent factor predicting the second latent factor and you have a regression coefficient. Well, there's a power to detect that regression Mm -hmm. coefficient, but there's also an omnibus power to evaluate the null hypothesis for the model as a whole. And those are operating differently here. Those are not doing the same thing. 
So it's very complicated to think about power, power overall, power of specific, but then you have parameter estimates, individual parameter mm -hmm. estimates. Each of those has a standard error. There are modification indices. Think about everything in your model that you would do. Each of those is impacted about how many parcels you ultimately select mm -hmm. and which items you assign to which parcels. Because for as big a fan as I am of this strategy from a practical standpoint, and again, to give away my punchline, I think we should aspire to not use parcels. I'm not anti-parcels. I'm just saying that aspirationally, we should try to design scales and samples where parcels are not needed. But if you're going to use them, we're making fundamental assumptions about the relation among those five items in a parcel that we're not necessarily testing. When we take a mean, each of those five items equally indicates a single unidimensional underlying factor with no measurement error. Mm -hmm. And then we're taking that to a factor analysis. Is that part of paying the reaper and where does that come from? These things get really hard to think about. How about if we break it up and pick one aspect and beat it to death and pick another aspect and beat it to death? So our usual. Usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's start off with just global fit, all right? Imagine that slider. Thinking about the implications for global data model fit, one of the first questions you really have to ask yourself is, what is the purpose of this particular model? And global fit may or may not help you toward that particular purpose. If your goal is to try to understand whether or not the structure that you have is reasonable, oftentimes we view the measurement portion of the model as this necessary vehicle to be able to get at a structural assessment. That in and of itself conveys a problem with a global fit assessment because the global fit assessment isn't really just of a structure. It's structure embedded in a measurement model, which could have 4,000 4, correlations, 4,005, 405 correlations, right? If your goal, on the other hand, is to assess the measurement portion of the model, which is often the case in a confirmatory factor model where we're hypothesizing and assessing the structure of a particular instrument, then the idea of parceling is one that you really have to approach with caution because the more you start to collapse things, the less you're actually able to understand what's going on in the measurement portion of the model. I view this as an unfair aspect of parceling. That is, even back in the day, some people advocated for using parcels because it led to better model fit. <laughs> There's actually writings that say this is an advantage. And I kind of think it's like, all right, which condition are you more likely to be arrested? When each body is buried in its own unmarked grave or where you put six bodies in each of five <laughs> unmarked graves, you are far less likely to be found with the latter than the former. Now, is that something that you should be bragging about? I don't know, but you're exactly right. That should never be a motivation in my eyes for doing parcels. Well, it's easier to get better model fit if you have fewer indicators. Just always remember the corpse-sniffing dog. It's easier, but it's probably not a good thing to do. Well, it's flawed from the start in the sense that our goal should never be good fit. 
Our goal should be an accurate representation of what the heck is going on. So the idea of keeping the slider going, oh, let me nudge it a little bit more. Do I like the fit yet? Nope. Let me nudge it a little bit more. Do I like the fit yet? Nope. Essentially, you know, a couple of things are happening. One is if there's any badness of fit in the measurement portion of the model, like through residual relations or other things, it's quite possible that when you parcel, you are obfuscating those. And so some of those little badness of fit things might appear to be going away, but you're really just, as you would say, burying the bodies somewhere. So that's thing one. The other is that one of the reasons you get good fit isn't just because you're hiding things in the measurement portion of the model. It's also because, let's think about this, your model has fewer degrees of freedom. If you have ever done the test of close fit or the test of not close fit, which is something in the realm of the root mean square error of approximation. McCallum, Brown, and Sugawara, 96. Right. So if you're familiar at all with those kinds of the tests, one of the things that actually affects the power is the number of degrees of freedom associated with the model. And the fewer degrees of freedom you have, all other things holding constant, the less power you are going to have. That's a very, very simple thing. So right out of the gate, the simple change about the number of variables is going to have implications for your ability to be able to say that your model is a good model or your model is a bad model. That's the statistical equivalent to the corpse-sniffing dog. (laughs) What's next on your list? I am going to assume that the goal of somebody who is entertaining parceling is not about measurement. Because honestly, if your goal is to understand what's going on in a measurement, the answer isn't to hide the measurement. And that's consistent historically, where there were two conditions where even the early people said you shouldn't parcel. And that is if you're interested in scale development, or if you're interested in evaluating dimensionality. Exactly right. So if your goal is measurement, don't screw with the measurement. Got it. But if your goal is to understand the relations among the structural aspects of a model. So you might have a model in which you have a collection of latent variables that might be hypothesized to influence some others, which in turn influence others. It might be a mediation model. And you perhaps only have complete mediation modeled rather than having some partial mediation, right? So your structural portion of your model, let's say it is not saturated, but you've made some hard choices and made the structural portion of your model over-identified. Okay, well, there are a number of aspects of that model you might be interested in. First, assuming that you have a reasonable structural model, something that's accurate, Are the parameter estimates of the relations among the factors themselves, are they going to be affected by what we do parceling-wise in the measurement portion of the model? Generally, your structural parameters won't be biased by your parceling. And that's going to make some assumptions, and chief among them being that you haven't buried some massive measurement body in the parceling. Because if you have, if there had been some relations that were really important for being able to control for those in order for you to accurately estimate what's going on in the structure, and you just kind of said, do-do-do, right, let's uh, six feet under, shallow grave, it's or whatever. I don't even have the vernacular for body know, burying I'm, that you have. It's frustrating, but... I'm sorry, it's, it's something I'm going to work on, though, I promise. Generally speaking, unless you're hiding some massive body in the measurement portion, you're not going to affect your ability to estimate the structural parameters. Now, we don't just estimate the magnitude of those parameters. We do two other things. We test the statistical significance, and we also ask the question about whether or not we have omitted any important parameters in the structural portion of our model. 
And parceling, in theory, has a bearing on both of those. With regard to the parameters that you have chosen to put into your structural model, there are going to be standard error estimates. And the things that tend to influence the standard error estimates, there are a variety of things, obviously things like sample size, but it's also the case that how stable your factor is influences standard error. And one of the measures of the stability of a particular construct is something called construct reliability or construct replicability, which is assessed sometimes with maximal reliability or coefficient H. But when you have higher construct replicability for each factor, you will generally get smaller standard errors. And so you will get more power to be able to test the parameters that connect those particular factors. So now if we think about what happens in terms of parceling, when you take your variables and smush them together, you are changing the loadings. And if you change the loadings, that may well change how stable a given factor is. The good news is that you have to have a pretty screwed up system of loadings and a pretty unfortunate aggregation of variables in order to grossly affect the construct replicability. Which all of that is to say that whether you take and model all 30 variables or 15 parcels of size 2, et cetera, et cetera, keep moving the slider, generally speaking, your construct replicability is not going to change much. It will decline a little bit, generally speaking, but not very much. That is the good news as far as testing structural parameters in the model. And could I throw in one fundamental assumption on that? Yeah. Both in the bias in the parameter or the lack of bias in the parameter and what you're talking about in the standard error assumes that part of burying the body is not affecting across factor relations. Mm -hmm. So imagine that at an item level, for whatever reason, maybe the item target, maybe the wording, maybe something that has to do with the item stem, that there's a correlated residual between an item on one factor and an item on another factor. Or you have maybe a small cross-loading where you have an item that has a primary loading on factor one, but has a slight cross-loading on factor two. You bury that item with the other corpses and it pushes that misspecification down into the parcel Mm -hmm. that then arises as whack-a-mole where now that item doesn't exist on its own anymore, that correlated residual can't reach across the factor in the way that you might want, and the North Carolina State Fair mole is going to pop up in that regression (laughs) coefficient. So it's just a reminder that these things all hold if you're collapsing within a factor, but that there aren't relations across factors that then drunkenly punch you in the face unexpectedly. (laughs) I really don't know very much about statistics, but I know a lot about analogies. Man, you have lived so much more life than I have. (laughs) With regard to the structure, what this also means is that whether we parcel or don't parcel, we will, generally speaking, have the same sensitivity to detect misspecifications in the structural portion of the model. But I have to be really clear on what I mean by that and really clear on what I don't mean by that. Imagine you were comparing two structural models, one that had some relations and the other that didn't. For example, in a 
mediation framework, you might have a model that has partial mediation, which allows direct effects from things at an earlier point in the causal scheme to a much later point in the causal scheme around that mediator. And then you have a model that is just complete mediation. Everything just passes through that mediating conduit. All right. So if you were to compare those two models, the ability to detect a difference in fit will largely not be affected by whether or not you have parceled. Again, assuming that the parceling is reasonable and you're not hiding things elsewhere. So whether you parcel or whether you don't parcel, the chi-square difference between those models will generally be about the same. The power for that test will generally be about the same. Now, if you were trying to assess the fit of your structural model in a different way, If you were saying something like, well, in a model that has 30 indicators per factor, I think the model overall fits great. And in a model that only has three indicators per factor or five indicators per factor, I think that the structural model doesn't fit particularly well. One of the problems with assessing the model in that manner is what I said earlier, and that is that you have this measurement model that really swamps your ability to detect misfit. When you have a lot of loadings that are fairly weak, generally speaking, the relations that variables have that have relatively weak loadings are very, very small relations. When variables don't connect very strongly to the factors, no matter how strongly the factors do or do not connect, it doesn't get communicated out to the variables very much because there are weak loadings. And what that means is that when the structural portion of your model is misspecified, when you have a lot of loadings, but they're relatively weak, there's not a lot of communication of that badness of fit out into the 4,005 correlations. On the other hand, when you have relatively few variables and they load relatively highly on the factors, Those variables then, when you omit a key structural relation, those variables correlation goes, whoa, wait a minute, we're missing something here. So if you are assessing the fit of your structural model by using the fit of the entire model, then you will have the illusory appearance. Is that how you say it? Illusory? 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 Sure. We'll go with that. (laughs) H-E-M-O-R-R-H-A-G-E, hemorrhage you will have the illusory appearance of being able to have greater sensitivity to detect structural misspecifications. But that's only because your structural model is now, relatively speaking, a larger part of what you have because you don't have these 4,000 correlations. And why would you ever use the fit of your model globally to be able to reach some sort of conclusion about the fit of a portion of your model locally? It just doesn't make any sense. So the take-home message of this is that if you are properly doing a comparison of two models to be able to isolate whether or not the structural portion of your model is reasonably specified, generally speaking, all other planets aligned, parceling won't necessarily matter. This is the part where not an and comes in, but a real live but. Dr. Michelle is going to be very angry. I know what Dr. Michelle said, but I have to say, I kind of like the butt. I like big butts and I cannot lie. Go ahead. Butt in. But may I introduce a complexity? I know, because so far things have actually been oversimplified. (laughs) Like, way oversimplified. Because everything the two of us have been yammering on about, mm-hmm. mostly you, but a little bit me, yeah. is a single set of parcels. Yeah. So you go from 30 to you know 10 to 5, whatever the even numbers work out to be. <laughs> Let's pull in one of my favorite people, Sonia Sturba. Mm. 
Sonia is an alum of the Thurstone Lab. We are very proud that she came through our halls. She has become one of the most important quant researchers in the field right now. She is at Vanderbilt University, and she is the program director of their quantitative psychology doctoral program there. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, she has written the definitive pieces on this topic. She identified an incredibly important concept that we haven't talked about yet, and that is what she calls parcel allocation variability, or PAV. No, we're not going to put these on the webpage because we don't have a webpage. <laughs> well, we do. We just haven't updated it. She has an initial paper with Bud McCallum, mm -hmm. and it's the Scottish McCallum, not the Irish McCallum, so it's <laughs> M-A-C. Mm -hmm. Then she wrote several papers on her own, and then she wrote several papers in collaboration with a very smart young academician named Jason Wrights with an R. Mm -hmm. And her most recent ones, I think, really tie a bow on this whole discussion. Mm -hmm. What Sonia raised that is critically important to this conversation and complicates everything that we just talked about is everything you and I have discussed so far have been a single parcel allocation. Mm -hmm. That is, you take the first five, then the next five then the next five, and that's where you get your six parcels. Well, it's a combinatorial problem, as we alluded to before. And if you're assuming unidimensionality, then it shouldn't matter which items go in each parcel. If you're doing this from a pragmatic standpoint, pick any six can go into those five or five into the six. Now I'm losing track. I think there were six items into the five. <laughs> Pick any six. It can be the first six. It can be a random six. And what Sonia shows is, well, first, there are millions. And in one paper, she identifies a trillion yeah. <laughs> ways yeah. that you can form these parcels. And wait for it. Each of those parcel allocations has a different chi-square, has different parameter estimates, has different standard errors. Maybe they're a little bit different, but she shows that sometimes there's a lot different. And so early in this literature, people were pretty cavalier of saying, it doesn't matter, just make a parcel and go about your business. And Sonia, in this incredible series of papers, says, whoa, folks, how you compute the parcel impacts your model results. And here's the thing that I think is critically important this introduces another source of variability into your model, right? We have sampling variability, but now there's parcel allocation variability. She makes one of the most compelling arguments across this arc of papers that one, this exists, two, it's important, and three, damn, we got to deal with this. I think Sonia's work is outstanding, and I think it's pretty definitive on this topic, right? If you said, hey, what one paper should I go to? I would not say go check our website. What I would say instead is... <laughs> check our MySpace page. Check our MySpace page. <laughs> um, it's there. It's totally there. But you can only get to it using Netscape. <laughs> <laughs> on your modem. <laughs> So, STURBA 2019 Multivariate Behavioral Research. The paper is called Problems with Rationales for Parceling that Fail to Consider Parcel Allocation Variability. 
It is a great paper because not does it just talk about this issue of parcel allocation variability that people hadn't really thought about. It systematically goes through the literature on parceling and kind of calls BS on just about everything anybody <laughs> said. Um, but politely. Politely. What my kids would say is she dunks on them. She completely <laughs> dunks on them. Or she posterizes them, right? That dunking moment where Jordan basically has his belly button in your face as you're falling backwards. Inside, Jordan hammers it through and floors Barkley. That's what her, her paper does. It posterizes the parceling literature up to date. I love it, love it, love it. And all the stuff that you and I were talking about, mainly me, you can blame me on this, was talking about things sort of in the expectation and what we would expect to happen without taking into account variability. And as you said, sampling variability occurs absolutely because of the sample that we get. But now we throw in this idea, almost like a sensitivity analysis, that we ask the question, well, what would have happened if you had parceled differently? And parceling differently might mean fixing the number of parcels that you have, but swapping partners throughout or it might mean using different numbers of parcels altogether. But the variability that you can get in every single aspect of your solution can be massive to the point where parameter estimates become non-significant. Your assessment of the fit of the model changes. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. And you don't know as your one little, it's not going to harm anybody parcel. You have no sense of where you are situated in the landscape of possibilities. And that's what I think she brought to light in an incredibly effective way. You referred to that paper once when you and I were talking as the mic drop paper. I did. <laughs> and it is. You know what? I think about it. I'm going to steal her idea and pretend like this was my own. Mm -hmm. So again, my usual... <laughs> I see it as almost an imputation-like perspective. So mm. back in the day, to handle missing data, you do mean imputation or last value carried forward or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But for years, people would do a single imputation and then fit the model to that as if they had the observation. Yeah. And that's been known to be limited for decades and through amazing work in Ruben early on and then carrying forward mm -hmm. is you never do a single imputation. You do multiple imputations and you get a distribution of results and then you combine the results using Ruben's various strategies to get some overall assessment of fit and parameters and standard errors and things like that. Sonia proposes exactly that thing using Ruben's methods don't take a single parcel. Take multiple parcels. It's very much like a multiple imputation in missing data. Mm -hmm. You have multiple parcels. You gather together all the chi-squares, all the parameter estimates, and then you weight them using the ways that Ruben described. And you get an omnibus model fit across these multiple parcels. It's freaking brilliant. Sonia, I don't know if you waste your time listening to this, but if you are, that work is just remarkable. Totally. And I really do think is a mic drop-like paper. Not just mic drop paper. I also sometimes call it, and I hope you all appreciate this reference, a sweep the leg paper. <laughs> sweep the leg, Johnny. Sweep the sweep leg. Sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. 
You have a problem with that. Listen, see? Sturba 2019, sweep the leg. There you go. <laughs> so I love the idea. The parallel to multiple imputation is a great one, not just in spirit, but in practice. The idea that you aggregate the within and between information to get something that you think is an overall better assessment, whether we're talking about it with respect to the model as a whole or with respect to relations inside the model. I love that. The thing that you might be able to help me out on is how the heck do we do that in practice? Is this something that is nicely automated or available for people? Sonia on her own and also in collaboration with Jason Wrights, they have some software utilities that allow mm -hmm. you to do this, that automate it. And those you can find in her papers. She has websites at Vandy that you can go and get this stuff. So yes, it is automated. Yeah, I absolutely love this idea. And it has challenged the way I think about parceling. I completely see the practicality of parceling. But now I have a better sense of the consequences of those kinds of decisions. So I love this work. And that was Sonia's main point in her very first paper this is more complicated than you think. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when I think about statistical models, I think about how does variability enter the model? And I envision it as a water spigot. Hmm. What Sonia has helped us think about is this parcel allocation variability is another spigot that you can turn on that introduces variability into our model. We need to recognize that. We need to somehow capture that numerically, and we need to embrace that as a potential limitation in our analyses. So I'm with you as I continue to be sympathetic to why you would parcel. I really am. I'm a very practical guy, both in academics, but also in just my day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. I see parceling as a necessary evil that you might take on to allow yourself to do something. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't lose sight of the aspiration that someday we don't need to do that. I like that point. And I will say that the rationales that people give for parceling oftentimes are not rationales that hold up as much today. So when we say things like, oh, it can really help out with the normality issues, you know, I say we have some pretty good methods of <laughs> dealing with non-normality now. And when people say, well, you know, it can help out with the categorical nature. And I go, we have some pretty good methods for dealing with categorical. But still, there is also this practicality to being able to navigate 4,000 relations in the data and whether or not that's really, really demanding with respect to the sample size that you have available. So I do see the practicality, but it has to be for the right reason. I think it can't be for solving these problems that really don't exist anymore. That's exactly right. And first, don't get uppity and say, oh, <laughs> I don't believe in parceling. I would never do parceling. Parceling is a horrible idea. Instead, I am going to do an observe variable path analysis. <laughs> Dude, you just parceled all your items into a single scale score. If you form a scale score and use that anywhere in your model, that is a parcel, you're just parceling all items into a single one. Second, there's a lot of recent emphasis in the literature and some really interesting stuff about 
Well, if you're in a position where you use scale scores, can we do better than a mean? So we're going back to early days of, well, there's regression-based factor score estimates. There's Bartlett factor score estimates. There are constrained covariance factor score estimates. And there's some really wonderful work by Kroon and colleagues about adjusting for biases and factor score estimates and path models. I mean, there's this whole thing out there on the horizon of factor scores and how do we use those. Well, a parcel is an unweighted mean of a set of items. So if you're out there and you're quant curious, why wouldn't you use a factor score as your parcel? Mm -hmm. What are the implications of that? There's a dissertation in that topic. Your comment about scale scores just reminded me of a paper in the parceling domain. I just thought I would mention it really quickly. There was a paper in Applied Psych Measurement back in 2010 by Yang Nei and Hoyle. And it compares parceling versus latent scoring algorithms versus just shortening your damn scale, right? You got 30 items, but there's only seven good ones on there. What happens if you just pull out the good ones? So it compares some of these different practical strategies for dealing with things. That's not to say that Sonia wouldn't sweep this leg too, but it is a comparison of some of those I thought I'd mentioned since you brought up the important issue of scoring. There are a lot of papers out there that address different aspects of this. And if we don't call out particular ones, it means nothing more than we didn't call out particular ones. Yeah. A lot of them are very, very good. And this is a great example of a quant question that has grown and matured over time. Mm-hmm. There was a very real problem that we faced, and parceling is a solution. And early work was proposed on that. That matured. There were issues identified with that. Updates were given. We now know more. We can now move into the future. I just like every aspect of this topic. Mm-hmm. Like I said at the opening, is there's some very real statistical issues. There are some very real practical issues. And the arc of research and discussion on this is, I think, a model for how we should approach other things. Hey, guys, here's an idea. We could do this. And it's like, oh, that's really clever. But did you think about that? Oh, I didn't think about that. But, oh, boy, look at what happens when you do this. There's just this wonderful maturation of understanding and application that helps us all use these in a more thoughtful way. All of which ends with Sonia crane kicking <laughs> the literature in the face. All crane technique. If to write or can defense. I'm done, my friend. I got nothing else. Yeah, I have to go check the mail and see if I got any packages today. <laughs> My only package story is about 10 years ago, a cardboard box came off of the baggage claim at Raleigh-Durham Airport, and it flipped over and broke open on the floor, and human heads spilled out. I kid you (laughs) not. You can Google this. What? And people freaked. And it turned out it was totally legit. They were going to one of the medical (laughs) schools for part of that. Turns out it was legit. I just like that the medical community decides to ship human heads in a cardboard box. (laughs) Imagine if a 40-pound car part had been in that box, beating those to hell. Yeah, well, they were in a bag. They were sealed in a bag. So that's the only parcel story. I mean, it's no box of cookies, but... (laughs) All right, buddy, I'm out. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye. 
Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they want to go to check out the number one social science podcast in Cyprus and Croatia. That's right. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, with the holidays only 10 weeks away, get your loved ones all taken care of with Quantitude merch from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, like Kegel exercises for your brain. Today's episode has been sponsored by online conferences. Seeing fit to charge you full registration price, even though almost none of the participants are wearing pants. And by study pre-registration, wouldn't it have better validity if it were pre-post-registration and with control registration? And finally, by the new and improved double blind study, the double super secret blind study. After all, wouldn't it be safer for everyone if no one ever even saw the data? This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>